When I was a child, I knew the words to some prayers by heart. When I felt lost and alone, when I didn't know what else to do, or sometimes for no reason at all, I would recite them aloud to myself. Somehow, there was some comfort in these words. And somehow, even as their theology may no longer resonate with me, there's some sense of belonging that I feel when I bring those words to my lips. Am I alone in this? Do any of you remember any of your childhood prayers? Do you know the 23rd Psalm by heart? Some of you? There's an older Unitarian Universalist children's religious education curriculum geared towards early elementary school children and focusing on faith development called the Haunted House. The youngest among us often have the easiest time with these kinds of concepts, concepts like faith, even as they are abstract and difficult for many adults. Children naturally have an innate sense of wonder, and they question where things come from, and why they exist, and where the justice is in a situation. They're natural mystics, one could say. So when we teach them about faith in this particular curriculum and in many others, we teach them about the feeling of being at home. They learn about the home in which they grew before they were born, and the home in which they will rest when they die. They learn about feeling at home in their own bodies. They learn what it means to have a sense of belonging, of connection, in a place and in general. We connect strongly to our homes. This morning we dedicated a precious little one committing her this to be her spiritual home These gestures matter because above all else, having faith is a sense of being at home, of belonging, of knowing deep in your bones that your life matters, of feeling that you are never alone and that there will always be a sunrise in the morning that will urge you to persevere when it feels that darkness has descended in your life. Faith is not about belief. It's about a feeling of connection. In her book, Fluent in Faith, a Unitarian Universalist Embrace of Religious Language, retired UU minister and religious educator Jean Harrison Newajar makes a strong case for why religious language matters in this faith tradition, and she uses children as a strong reason. She argues that we teach our children about that what we teach our children about faith is what will be most salient for them throughout their lives and what will or will not be available to them when they are in need. She writes, We often romanticize childhood, brushing lightly over the pains and loneliness that too often permeate these tender years. But it isn't easy to be a child. Throughout our lives, from when we begin to discern between kindness and unkindness, good and bad, we all stray from the paths of goodness. 
We have moments when we are mean and hurtful. We are selfish, sometimes dishonest. And we know it. And because we know it, we feel guilty. Acknowledging our frailty, our missing the mark, is a spiritual process. Confessing, humbling ourselves, making amends is a religious process. Children and youth, as well as adults, will be stronger and healthier if they learn to move through these processes in an honest and healing way. This has been part of the work of religious traditions for centuries. We all miss the mark. We mess up. We hurt one another, whether we mean to or not. And we rarely do the work of atonement and repentance, which is to say the work of repairing the emotional and physical damage that our actions have caused in order to become whole again and to turn in a new direction and resolve to learn from this mistake to be a better person. It's a very long explanation for two little words. Sometimes we don't even say we're sorry, never mind all of the extra work above. What a gift we could give to our children if we teach them how to truly process through our own, their own humanity and our own. How to forgive ourselves, yes, but also to atone and repent so that we are building stronger relationships to, and becoming more whole and better people as well. Okay, how many of you became lost when I used big religious words? Atonement, repentance. How many are allergic to those words? A few? Those words are loaded sometimes. But did you see how nuanced the meanings of those words are? Did you see how I unpacked them and they might not have been so awful in the way I define them? Do you see how they point towards a deeper and fuller way of living and relating to the world than just saying you're sorry? Do you know of other words that mean the same thing? Talking about our spiritual lives, the lives that help us make sense of it all, the lives that give us hope when all seems lost, the lives that help us to continue to move towards more goodness, talking about these lives is really hard. It's hard enough when we have all of the language that exists. For even the breadth of our entire language sometimes barely skims the surface. So why do we throw out perfectly good words because someone else has a different meaning of it that we don't agree with? Why would we make it that much harder for ourselves to get to those great, wondrous, mysterious things that we gather here to discover and discuss? I know the answers to these questions. I've made the arguments myself. I know why these words carry so much weight. And at the same time, they only have the power that we give them. By continuing to shy away from language that could help us to articulate our free faith, our life-affirming faith, we continue to give the problematic definitions of such words power over us. If all language is metaphor, as many great philosophers have asserted throughout time, 
then the meanings of such words are malleable and will be shaped by their common usage. So when there are so many fundamentalist voices asserting their views of such words, I assert that we need proud, liberal people of faith to stand up and share what they mean for them. We need to bring the flexibility back to religious language in public discourse. As Neuiger puts it, words will serve us best if we allow them to be elastic. Perhaps not meaning precisely to to me what they mean to you or to your Jewish neighbor or your Lutheran in-laws, but pointing in the same general direction, capturing the essence of a shared experience, a shared longing for a deeper spiritual life. It remains up to us, members of the religious left, to do this work. We who understand that we are all speaking in metaphor and that there is space within the scriptures for interpretation and critique. Not just Unitarian Universalists believe this, but all religious progressives. Our siblings, the United Church of Christ, has gone as far as to put this kind of notion in their tagline. God is still speaking. If we believe in religious freedom, then we must take part in this important work to free religion from those who would use it for oppression. If we wish more people to know that there are faiths in which they will not be made to feel small or not good enough, faiths in which their questions will be valued rather than scolded, then we must be a voice that will take our place among the others trying to define what faith even means, what religion means, what God means. We have too long kept our mouths shut and hidden what beauty and wonder we have found in this faith for fear that we might be seen as evangelizing. As Neuiger puts it, we abjure evangelizing, but perhaps because we have confused evangelism with witness. To witness is not to put forth one's own faith as the only true right way, nor is it to try to persuade others to adopt your way of being religious. To witness is to put one's faith into words and into actions. By staying silent, we allow so many people to continue their lives attempting to create meaning on their own, yearning for a community like this one and not knowing that we are here. But furthermore, it's important work for us to reclaim some religious language for our own sake, not just for the sake of others. Neuiger argues argues that the language available to us determines what we are capable of thinking. She says that by not fully articulating what our faith is about, we do not fully live into it. She writes, I'm concerned that our own inner faith as adults is weakened to the extent that we are unable to articulate that faith. The gentle Episcopal priest Frederick Buchner in his book A Room to Remember writes, it's not that you feel love and then say, I love you. But that until you say, I love you, 
you have not fully loved. In some important sense, the thing you are seeing or feeling doesn't even exist for you until you have given a word to it. What Buchner is affirming here, Neuinger goes on, has nothing to do with communicating your love to your beloved. It's about bringing that love to fullness in your own heart and mind by saying the words to yourself, naming and defining the reality of your love, bringing it out of the realm of gray possibility into the fullness of life. In this way, perhaps, we are to begin here in discussing what religious language means to us and could mean to us amongst ourselves, just to name out loud that which is resonant in our spiritual lives. Perhaps this will open us up to new metaphors, new understandings of the religious language that we have been allergic to, that will allow our understandings of what it means to be a faith community of seekers to expand and deepen. For this is our role as seekers, isn't it? Allowing our understandings to expand and deepen. Neuiger writes, words are tools for expression and communication, but they are much more than that. They are containers for the possibilities of our lives. They shape what we perceive and experience. They're essential tools for our imaginations. They define and they limit what is possible. That for which there is no construct in our minds eludes our grasp. The consequences if we do not name what we are can be great. For she writes, as our vocabulary tiptoes rather than strides, we reinforce the perilous notion that Unitarian Universalists can believe whatever they want. And those of you who have heard me speak before know that that's one of my pet peeves. She says, this is tantamount to saying there's no there there. Nothing of substance to ground and guide us. When we neglect to articulate our shared religious life, we deny our heritage. We deny our deep bonding theology that's rooted in a rich history and continues to evolve through the wisdom and imagination of the present generation. Okay, there are words that we all agree to that aren't religious and that are deeply a part of our faith or aren't seeped in religious baggage the way some others and are deeply part of our faith. And we've used them to define ourselves during this period of our history in which we have been, on the whole, uncomfortable using language of reverence. Hope, long ago, named its core values as reason, integrity, and tolerance. And we sure talk a lot about freedom. How can you argue with the notion of freedom? But Neuinger argues these are not words that do active religious work in our lives. She writes, for me, freedom, reason, and tolerance serve primarily as tools, processes for faith, wonderful, healthy tools, necessary tools, but in a time of despair, I would find neither comfort nor hope in them. Reason and faith ask different questions and tell different stories. Science can tell us about how the hand is formed and how it's able to do the amazing things it does, 
It can tell us how the artist holds the brush, but now not how she imagines the images that emerge upon her canvas. It can tell us how the nerves in her fingertips can feel the touch of another hand, but not how that touch can soothe our fears or heighten our passions. To think about and talk about creativity and kindness and courage and beauty, we need another story, another language. We need a language of faith. We are called to go beyond reason to its supportive cousin, faith. For reason is an essential part of our spiritual lives, but it is a means to the end of how we shape our faith, not the grounding for the faith itself. So you may ask, what is the grounding for the faith itself? And I'm not going to begin to skim the surface of that, but I will skim the surface of it just a little bit. There's about eight sermons in, that, in the answering that question. But our theology is not made up of shared beliefs. Our theology is not made up of shared beliefs. Beliefs are products of the mind. They shift and evolve in our lives. They are not codified. They are the blossoms of the tree of our tradition. But faith is our roots. It's how we have built the ground on which we stand. It's what holds the tree firm when the beliefs fall and decay and new ones grow in their place. And our Unitarian Universalist theology lives in those roots so that we can leave room for different kinds of blossoms to emerge on our strong and vital tree so that we can nurture such great, vibrant colors and such different shapes and fragrances within the blossoms that we each grow and within the blossoms within each of our congregations. The theology of our faith has been a struggle for us to collectively define, but I don't find it that hard. If you will look deeper, beyond just the blossoms, where the thick, strong trunk, our roots begin to, stick, to take shape. It can be hard to articulate these roots for sure if we abandon all religious language. It can be hard to name the ground out of which our religious tradition is growing without using language that points towards religion. Not just because so much of our history includes Christian religious language, but because it's hard to say what we are pointing towards with any language and cutting ourselves off from some of the most rich and powerful words in our vocabulary makes it a lot more difficult. One of the strong historical roots we hold dear is the notion that our personal theologies are grounded in our personal experience. As I spoke about a few weeks ago, we are asked to put our lives through the fire of thought as we make meaning of our lives within the greater context of history and the world around us. When our experiences have shown us that religion harms, that it restricts freedom and represses love, it's natural to develop beliefs that do not include the trappings of religion. Even though we know that religion is meant to bind us together. The root of the word common to the word ligament literally means to bind together. And if we 
use the word religion in that way, could it change back? But I know that you all have also had deep religious experiences, whether you would have called them that or not. I know that you have felt yourself as a part of something greater, that you have felt transcendence. You have been in relationship with something that cannot quite be named or that reason cannot define. Neuinger reminds us that in biblical Hebrew, there is not a term meaning belief in. What's important is that expressions of faith attempt to know God, not believe in God. That is, to feel the power of relationship and connection with the holy, to feel an intimacy. What we are really getting at here is our relationship to something, something that provides us strength when we feel weak and holds our hand when we feel lonely, something which urges us to continue to work towards being the best human we can be as we forgive ourselves when we mess up and make amends with those around us and continue to turn ever more towards goodness. But even with all of the talk about God, she writes, I personally don't believe in God. I don't have an idea of a God who's active in my life, but I do have a deep and sustaining faith. I do feel a sense that my life matters, that, that all life matters, that it's woven into the larger fabric of life with all its beauty and its suffering. I have a felt sense that I am not alone. I feel love and longing and connection and compassion. I don't believe in God, but I find the word God to be useful as I try to talk about this faith. Some days I might say I believe in God, other days I might not. And some of the days that I do feel a sense of belief, I might be mighty angry with that God for the suffering I'm feeling or witnessing and the fairness that isn't there. Those of you who pay close attention to me most weeks, I hope know by now that I don't mean what might jump to mind by the word God. I long ago rejected the conventional sense of what God might be. But I, like Neuinger, sense a deep connection to humanity that I can't quite explain. And I know in my bones that all life is sacred and that all humans are worthy of love and that we all yearn for belonging and wholeness. I know that when bombs went off this week in what was the neighborhood of my high school, a strong home of my childhood, sacred ground was desecrated for me. But more than that, it was an affront to my faith. For my homeland, the sacred ground on which our family, our, our faith truly was built, our faith tradition truly was built, was seg- desecrated. For the whole story seemed like an affront to my faith. Bodies torn apart, challenging my faith that we are all whole. The fear that I felt to hear that a member of my family was literally on her way to that spot just moments away when it happened. And I know 
that when I heard responses based in fear and racism and terrible misconceptions about a sometimes beautiful faith tradition called Islam, I know that those responses gave me a visceral reaction that something was wrong. I know that the overwhelming responses of hope and resilience and courage that were seen all over Boston are a testament to my faith in humanity and our deep connections to one another. And I know that that connection is stronger than our fear and that unity is stronger than division. I know that the outpouring of support and solidarity from around the world, the way we all connected once again to a tragedy and its tense aftermath unfolding before us, whether we had some connection to it or not, because we all had some connection to it. Because underneath it all, we are united in at least our humanity. Yes, even the Sarnayev brothers who took great lashing out, who lashed out in anger and anguish this week. Our faith calls us to bring compassion even to them. We are all united in our ability for great good and great evil and in our capacity for fear and hope. And we are all torn apart when the fabric of humanity is ripped in such a way as it was this week and in 1995 in Oklahoma City this week. And in those moments, it is our faith that keeps us going. That keeps us turning back towards the good, even as we search for answers and retribution. It is my faith that brings me joy that Jahar is still alive. Not just so that we might have some answers, but so that he might be given the opportunity for atonement, repentance, and forgiveness for he is also a child of God. It's my love for all humanity, that love which I sometimes call God, that helped me remember that even those who do monstrous deeds are worthy of love and forgiveness. It was my prayers that helped to ease my fears when I couldn't reach my family. It was the roots of our faith that got me through. And they keep getting me through whatever comes. No matter what we call it, this kind of faith we have is strong. The kind that will walk us through the valley of whatever shadows we will face. The kind that asks us to lift up a child and dedicate ourselves to that precious life. Our roots are deep and strong. May they offer us what we need in the fearful, desperate, lonely moments of our lives when the path seems unclear and hope is hard to find. And may they offer us the strength to be that runner who runs a 27th mile to give blood and to be one of the first responders who runs towards the destruction and one of the families who called with tips, and who let people into their homes to search throughout this week. Our shared theology is rich, and the blossoms are some of the most fragrant and colorful and gorgeous I have ever seen. May the blossoming be enriched by our connections to our roots, and may the blossoming ever continue. May it be so.
کنم این